Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verse 1? Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and uh, he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, verse 4 is the first reference in the Bible of the written word. Uh, I'm not saying that no one ever wrote anything down before this that God had told him. Uh, I believe Adam did, Noah, Abraham, you know. But this is the first reference of the fact that uh, the word of God was written down. And I want you to notice verse 1. How that the elders of Israel, all except Moses, had to worship God from a distance. How different that is from the priests of the New Covenant. And who are the priests of the New Covenant? All of us. He has made us a kingdom of priests in the sense that all of us are now worthy through the blood of Christ to approach God. See, as we're going to see in the Old Covenant, only the priests could approach God. Only they were worthy to be mediators between the people and God. In the New Covenant, God removed the middle ground. God removed the mediator except one who bridged the gap, Jesus Christ, our great mediator. He's our high priest. The word uh, priest in Latin is bridge builder. He is the supreme bridge builder that built the bridge between fallen man and God, and we come and uh, come to God through him. I love what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 13. He said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're well, talking about the fact that before we got saved, we were alienated from God. Oh, but I went to church. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you did spiritually. If you were not in Christ, if you were not a born-again Christian, then you were afar off. But of course, once we received Jesus, the blood of Christ has brought us near to God. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Guess what? Under the new covenant, guys, we get to decide how close we want to get to the Lord. We get to decide that. In the old covenant, God told them, you guys go this far, that's enough. But in the new covenant, we can come as close to God as we want every single day. He'll never say, I'm too busy. Did you make an appointment? It's always, his door's always open. We're, we're his children. Exodus 24, verse 5. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now this was before the Levitical priesthood was officially started and established. And before that, there were these young men. We don't know who they were, but they might have been the sons, oldest sons of the leaders of each of the 12 tribes. Of course, they were eventually replaced by the sons of Aaron. But uh, they offered two offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings and peace offerings. That's significant. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but next time you read Leviticus, okay, 
If you've ever read Leviticus, you should read it, all right? The first few chapters deals with the offerings. And there were different offerings, okay? You had the uh, uh, burnt offerings. They were uh, consecration offerings. What do I mean? When you brought a burnt offering to the Lord, you laid, the priest laid it on the altar, and the whole thing was burned up. It was all consumed, signifying everything went to God. He got it all, just like he wants from our lives. He wants us to be consecrated sacrifices, not holding anything back, but giving all to him. But they did have other offerings, such as peace offerings. A peace offering was a fellowship offering. And here's how it worked. You'd bring your animal to the priest, and he would take part of it and burn it up completely to the Lord, barbecue the rest, give it back to you, and you went somewhere and ate it, because the idea was that in that culture, they, they believed that if you uh, ate with somebody, you became one with them. And especially if you were sustained off of the, say, the same loaf of bread, and you're dipping it in the same sauces. Uh, because you were being sustained off the, off the one loaf of bread or the one animal, uh, it was a very powerful fellowship offering. Uh, where you're, Excuse me, a fellowship uh, idea was that you were fellowshipping, you were uh, having communion with each other. And so these peace offerings were just that. Uh, they would bring the animal to the priest, he would take part of it, burn it up to the Lord, barbecue the rest, give it back to you, and you would go and eat it in the presence of God, speaking of that you were, being, you were becoming one with him, fellowship. Verse 6, And Moses took half the blood, so the animals were sacrificed, he took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now, the book of the covenant basically contained all the laws that God had given to Moses, all the way from chapter 20, verse 1, through chapter 23, verse 19. Moses wrote all of these down in a book. The Hebrew was scroll, obviously. Verse 4 tells us that. And then this book or this scroll was read to the people. Now, these were his laws, but they were also the terms of the covenant. These were the terms, all right? God was proposing a covenant with his people. And so now he gives them the terms of the covenant. Of course, the covenant was, you obey me, I will bless you, all right? Well, Lord, obey you in what? How? I'm going to give you the terms. So Moses writes them down, and then he reads it back to the people, the terms of the covenant, the book of the covenant. And they respond in verse 7, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Now, guys, the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice onto the book and onto the people was the way the covenant was ratified. It was a covenant of blood, a sacred contract between God and his people. It reminds us of what God said through Paul in Hebrews chapter 9. Why don't you turn there? In the book of Hebrews, so much of the old covenant is repeated, but only to show how that the new covenant is superior. But the old covenant and the new covenant had one thing in common. They were both ratified through blood. Hebrews 9 verse 16. For where there is a testament, that's just a will. When you read the word testament, it's just a will. Last will and testament, we say. But where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead. 
since it is no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Something had to die, okay, so that the covenant could be ratified. Well, in the old covenant was animal sacrifices. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission, there's no forgiveness of sin. And of course he goes on to say that the new covenant was also ratified by blood, the blood of the Lamb of God who died in Calvary's cross. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, at that moment, I know the night before he celebrated communion, all right? But that's not when the, the New Testament or the New Covenant started. He was looking forward to it. He was telling them that as often as you eat this bread, drink this from this cup, you are remembering what it took to bring you who are far away near into the New Covenant. But on Calvary's cross, when Jesus bowed his head and said, it is finished and died, that's when the New Covenant officially began. It took the death of someone before a will is in force. Well, Jesus died that we might now have eternal life. Here's the thing, and don't miss this. The main difference between the Mosaic Covenant, which is what we're talking about in Exodus here, and the New Covenant, which is what we're all a part of, was that the Mosaic Covenant was a, listen, bilateral covenant. Bilateral means two-party. And the new covenant was a unilateral covenant or a one-party covenant. A bilateral covenant was conditional. In other words, you had two people that had entered into a covenant with each other. Both of them had terms to fulfill. If one person carried out their part, then the other person would carry out their part and the covenant would be fulfilled. But both people had to fulfill their part of the covenant, had to keep the terms. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. Conditional, okay? Of course, did they obey God fully under the Old Covenant? No. Did God still bless them in many ways? Yeah. But eventually, he removed them from their land because of how badly they broke the covenant and became idolatrous, very immoral, and so on. The old covenant was inherently flawed, not because of God. It wasn't on God's part. You know, God's covenants are, he, he always fulfills his part. It's us. We're the problem. Here God is giving them the terms of the Mosaic covenant. Where's Moses? He's up on Mount Sinai, right? Now he's going to be up there for 40 days and 40 nights, as we're going to see. The people grow impatient, waiting for him to come down. As we're going to read, they press Aaron to make a golden calf. And they begin to worship the golden. Moses hasn't even come down from the mountain yet. You want to enter into a covenant with me? God says, sure. Here it is. Read it, Moses, to the people. Oh, we're going to do all this, Lord. We'll do it all. All right, Moses, come on up. He goes up to the top of the mountain. God's talking to him, giving him all kinds of other things. And while he's up to the people, have Aaron make a golden calf, begin to worship it, begin to say, this, O Israel, is your God that brought you out of Egypt. Before they, Moses even got down from the mountain, they had broken the covenant. That was what was wrong with the Mosaic Covenant. 
two-party contract, Israel was not faithful in fulfilling their part. So you know what God did? He said there's coming a day, and he said this in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there is coming a day when I'm, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the one I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, that covenant which they broke, but I'm going to write my laws in their hearts. Basically what God is saying is I'm going to take it out of their hands completely. The new covenant is a unilateral, unconditional covenant. You know why? Because God did all the work. We had no part in it. God didn't say at any time, look, you can have eternal life if you go to church every week, read your Bible for an hour every day, uh, light so many candles every month, etc. God simply said, you believe in my son. You believe in my son, you have everlasting life. Oh, but Lord, I'm not worthy. I didn't ask you to be worthy. Oh, Lord, since I've accepted Jesus, I blow it so much. I understand that. I knew you were going to blow it. But Lord, doesn't that mean you stopped loving me? Did I say my love was based on what you do? My love is based on who I am and what I've done. This is the new covenant. It's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And let me just say this. Once you receive Jesus Christ by faith and are a member of his body now, since you did nothing to earn that eternal life, how can you do anything to forfeit eternal life? Now look, there are those people who pray a prayer, walk an aisle, sign a card. I'm a Christian now. But God sees the heart. And God knows that in their heart, they really have not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Therefore, how do we know if they're really genuine or not? What did Jesus say? You will know them by their what? Sides of the Bible they carry around under their arm? <laughs> how many Jesus t-shirts they wear? How many bumper stickers that say, warning in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned? I mean, what, you know. No, the new covenant is all about what God has done for us. We have no part in it except to believe. Therefore, because we have no part in earning salvation, we have no part to lose salvation. That's why it's so much better than the old covenant. As the writer of the Hebrews says, the new covenant was built on better promises, on a greater high priest, etc., etc. You can read the book of Hebrews. Verse 9, Then Moses went up also, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet... Uh, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. Uh-oh, they saw God. Well, I, I'm a little confused, because in John chapter 1, verse 18, we read, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father he has declared him. I remember, as we're going to come to Exodus 33, at one point Moses asked the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see your face. What did God say? Mo, you can't see my face. I mean, if you, if you ever looked into my face and saw all my fullness, my glory, you would be incinerated on the spot. Best I can do is to have you hide yourself in the cleft of that rock over there, because they're on the mountain. And I'll pass by you. I'll put my hand over you. And I'll pass by. And then I'll remove my hand. You can see my afterglow. But you can't see my face. So I'm a little confused then. 
They saw God and uh, were not destroyed. Well, what we have to assume is they saw God, but not in his fullness, of course. The text might even imply all they saw was the feet of God. Okay, we don't know if they even saw his face. But uh, we know that to see God face to face, you have to be perfect. You have to be sinless. And when the rapture happens and we put on our glorified bodies and we are made like Jesus, perfect, as we now jettison the flesh, the old nature, and so on, and now receive or clothe ourselves with uh, a new body, just like God has given us a new nature, but now we get a new body to go with it, then we will see God face to face. But not until then. Verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. So Joshua and I are going to go up back up to the mountain, as God has said. I'm going to leave Aaron and Hur down here. If there's any problems, they'll be the judges. They can listen to the cases and make a judgment. Verse 16. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst, midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. So he was up on top of Mount Sinai, communing with the Lord. God was speaking to him, giving him instructions and so on. He was up there for 40 days and 40 nights without food and water, which means God supernaturally sustained him during that 40-day, 40 40-night 40 period. Verse 17 tells us, though, that the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Hebrews 12.29 says that our God is a consuming fire. And the context of Hebrews 12 was judgment. All right, was judgment. Our God is to those who are unsaved a consuming fire. Now to us who are redeemed, there is therefore now no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't worry about the judgment of God, but to those who are not saved, who have not received Christ, the writer says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God without Jesus Christ, without salvation, right? Because our God is a consuming fire. But listen, fire in the Bible, in Scripture, is used as a symbol often for judgment. Judgment. Now, I want you to notice, this is when the law was being given. And as Moses is up on top of the mountain, the people have got to keep their distance. And they see the top of the mountain on fire. They know the Lord's up there. So they associate the fire, of course, with the Lord. He's a consuming fire. They're terrified. But what is God communicating by manifesting himself as a fire when the law was being given? What he was saying is the law was never intended to make you righteous or to save you. It was always intended by me to show you your sin, to judge you guilty before me. 
God never intended for the law to make anyone righteous. It was always intended by God to show us our sin. Turn to Romans 3. It was always intended by Him to condemn us as lawbreakers, to judge us and show us our guilt before a holy God. Paul makes that clear. And there's a lot of folks who are trying to use the law, and I'm thinking the Ten Commandments primarily, as a vehicle by which they are hoping to be saved. You know, I'm a good person. Uh, who told you you were a good person? God never said you were a good person. You never told me I was a good person. I mean, why do you think you're a good person? Well, I, you know, I try to live a good life. You ever lied? Well, yeah. What does that make you? A liar? Have you ever taken the holy name of God and used it as a cuss word? Well, sure. What does that make you? A blasphemer? Have you ever looked at a woman, if you're a guy or if you're a girl, a guy, and lusted after them in your heart? Well, sure, who hasn't? Then what does that make you in the eyes of God? It's a, he says it makes you an adulteress or an adulterer. On the day of judgment, when you stand before him, do you think he's going to say you're a good person or a guilty person? I suppose a guilty person. Well, does that bother you? Does that worry you? Well, sure. Well, i got good news for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would put their faith in him would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. Salvation is something you receive, not something you earn. All right? And Paul makes that very clear, Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law doesn't save me. The law just shows me how guilty I am because I break God's laws every day of my life. Through the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. I'll paraphrase. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, nobody gets into heaven. Justified means saved. Nobody gets into heaven. For by the law, it doesn't come salvation. It comes the knowledge of sin. But John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What did Paul say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved, through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Salvation's a gift, not the result of your good works, lest any should boast. God doesn't want us standing in heaven boasting. Boy, I really deserve to be here. You should have seen what kind of guy I was down there, man. You know, God doesn't want that. God wants to get all the glory. And uh, he does get all the glory because none of us could hurt heaven, no matter how good you are, Okay. Now, guys, this ends the second main section of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, as we've already said, divides itself into three main sections. The Exodus, chapters 1 through 18. The Law, chapters 19 through 24. And now we enter the third and final major section called the Tabernacle from chapters 25 to 40. Now, look, while Moses was up on the top of Mount Sinai, not only did God give him his laws, which included two tablets of stone upon which he had written the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, but the Lord also gave to Moses a detailed set of instructions, blueprints, if you will, for the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, which was a tent, 
would also be called at one point the tent of meeting, the tent of meeting, because it was the place where man's sins were atoned for by the blood of the sacrifice, thus allowing man and God to meet or to come together for fellowship and communion. The tent of meeting, the place where sins were dealt with and atoned for, which opened the way for God and man to have fellowship. The tabernacle would become the center and focus of their national, listen, and personal lives. And as we're going to see, when the tabernacle was completed, God said that each of the tribes were to line up around it. And he names three to the north, three to the south, three to the west, three to the east. And if you, if you study that and notice the number of the three tribes to the north, it's the smallest number. If you study the three tribes to the south, it's the largest number. On either side, about equal. If you were in a helicopter flying over the wilderness uh, back then, with the tabernacle right in the middle of the camp, you would have flown over and looked down and saw a cross. Because that's what it looked like in the desert from the air. The cross is where man and God come together for fellowship. It's only the cross. That's where our sins are dealt with. But the uh, tabernacle was about to become the very center of their national and personal lives. They were to camp, as I said, around it, north, south, east, and west, facing toward it. The last thing you saw at night before you entered your tent to go to sleep was God Almighty in the form of a burning pillar of fire. The first thing you saw when you exited your tent in the morning was the Lord of glory, the Shekinah in a pillar of cloud. But he was always the first and last thing on your mind because he was central to their life and should be to ours as well. Well, chapter 25, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who uh, gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Did you notice that? Willingly. God never wants our giving to him to be done out of obligation or duty or to be coerced in any way. It must always be done out of a joyful, willing heart. You can read 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 to 7. God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek is, God loves a hilarious giver. All right, Hilarious in the sense that you get to take what you cannot keep and invest it in things you cannot lose. The things of God. And the rewards will be waiting for you when you get to heaven. That should make us fall down on our faces and laugh hysterically. That I get to take something like money. That I can't take with me when I die. But I can use it right now for the glory of God. And lay up for myself treasures in heaven that will be waiting for me someday. But, but you know, God wants our giving to be joyful. Why? Because he allows us to give to him, again, Earthly things that we might have eternal rewards. Do you think God needs your money? If you listen to some of these TV preachers, you would think that. They're always making God out to, to be a pauper, you know? Oh, if you don't send your money in right away, this precious ministry is going to come to a stop. Good. <laughs> if that work depends on me, to keep it going is not of God. Because where God guides, He what? He provides. 
So why does God want me to give? So he can bless me. He doesn't need it. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. He doesn't need anything from us. He allows us to give to him because, A, we need to. We're too selfish by nature. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and take some of what God has blessed us with to give back to him to be used to help others. Secondly, it's just that we just need to look at our lives in terms of eternity and stop looking at things in, in the light of time. And that's what giving to the work of God helps us to do as well. So God says, look, I want the people to bring me all these things. But they have to do it willingly, joyfully. All right, verse 3. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, from the people, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate of the uh, high priest garment, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings just so you shall make it. So God says, look, I want you to make it exactly the way I gave you the blueprints. Okay, follow my instructions to the letter. I've told you how to make them, the exact dimensions and so on. Make sure you take very great care to do exactly what I've told you to make this tabernacle exactly from or exactly like what I've shown you. Now, God was being uh, such a stickler about this because the tabernacle on earth was really a model of his throne in heaven. In fact, you can turn to Hebrews 8 for a second. And in verse 5 we read, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. He's talking about the priests on earth in the Old Covenant and how that they were serving God in the tabernacle later the temple. But it was really only a shadow of the reality. Of course, the reality was heaven. God's throne in heaven is the reality. On the earth, well, it was a copy, and God did dwell, as we're going to see on the mercy seat, but it was only a, a copy, a shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this is why God was such a stickler about this. Now, God says, I want you to have the people, whoever wants to give, bring you know gold silver bronze precious stones linen so on you say well where did they get all this stuff from if you're new with us and you weren't here for the study uh, it's your first time understand that all these things came from the egyptians in exodus 3 uh, verse 22 and then exodus 12 verse 36 god says look i'm going to lead you out of egypt but before i lead you out you're going to go to your neighbors your egyptian neighbors and you're going to ask them to give you precious stones Gold, silver, all kinds of things. And they're going to be happy to do it, by the way. Whatever you want, take it, get out of here. And God says, in this way, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. Well, basically, it was back pay for all the years of slavery that they did for the Egyptians and didn't get paid. So God is saying, no, no, you're not stealing from them. You are actually taking your back pay and take it into the wilderness because we're going to use a lot of it to do something with, as we're seeing right now. So verse 10, God begins to now show us or speak of 
some of the things that would go into the tabernacle. We'll actually look at the tabernacle itself next week. But these were some of the things that were, would go into the tabernacle. In verse 10, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, a cubit was roughly about 18 inches. So therefore, the Ark of the Covenant would have measured 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide by 2 foot 3 inches high. It was just a rectangular wooden box overlaid with gold. Verse 11, And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. So a little kind of a golden uh, fence around it. Verse 12, You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them... In its four corners, two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So once the poles have been slid through the rings, leave it there. Leave them both there. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Now, the reason the ark was to be made with rings on the bottom that poles slid through was because the ark was never supposed to be touched. It represented the very presence of God on the earth. And if it needed to be transported, which in the wilderness it would have to be transported from time to time, uh, the priests were to go in backwards. You didn't look at it either, by the way, because you know nobody just stares in the presence of God on their terms. So the priests would actually have to, have to walk in backwards, cover it, without looking at it, and then they would pick it up on these two poles, and it was to rest on the shoulders of a very specific family uh, in the tribe of Levi. That would be the family of Kohath, or the Kohathites would be the ones that were designated by God to carry the ark, among some other things. But it was never to be touched, and so that from the time you were a young boy, if you were a member of the family of Kohath, from the time you were a young boy, you were trained on how to transport the ark and why you never touched it. It was a sacred, holy thing, represented God. We don't walk over and manhandle God on our terms. You, you didn't touch it. You had to carry it reverently on your shoulders to wherever God was going to have the tabernacle be placed again. You remember the story of Uzzah. We're going to get to it in a, a couple of weeks uh, on Sunday morning. 2 Samuel 6. I won't give, go into the whole thing. But at one point, the Ark of the Covenant had not been in Jerusalem for many years. So David wants to bring it to Jerusalem so he can establish worship again from Jerusalem. Because he's a king now. He's the king. And he's a man of worship. And he recognizes you cannot really have a nation blessed by God that's not really in fellowship and worshiping God. So the order of business was to go to the house of, um, where it was, I think it was in Kirjath Jerim. And they were to bring it. Well, David, I don't know what he was thinking. He didn't read the scriptures about this. And I'm shocked by that. He decides he's going to make a cart and hook it to, you know, some oxen and have a couple of guys drive the oxen with the cart on the back of the, of the excuse me, the ark on the back of this cart. Well, the thing's bouncing around. You know, you can imagine the roads are ruddy and things, and it's bouncing around. At one point, the ark hits a, uh, the cart, I should say, hits a rut, and the ark begins to topple like it's going to topple off into the dirt. And Uzzah reaches back and touches it to steady it, and God strikes him dead in the spot. Uzzah was a Kohathite. He knew better. 
He knew better. David was devastated. I'm sure he was thinking, God, here we try to do something nice for you, and this is how you treat us? Look, it's good to do a good thing. Make sure you do it in the right way. The end doesn't justify the means. If we're going to serve God, we've got to do it in his terms, according to his instructions. I don't get to say, like Cain, here, here's what I'm going to do for you, God. You better like it, because that's not acceptable. Yeah, but he was just trying to keep the ark from toppling off into the dirt. The dirt obeys God. The earth brings forth everything as God has commanded it. It's man who is rebellious. The dirt would not have defiled the ark. Only fallen, depraved man touching the ark would have defiled it. Something we have to think about. Now, the testimony that they were to put into the ark, of course, were the two tablets of stone upon which God had written the Ten Commandments. And because the ark contained the testimony of God, written on tablets of stone, it was also referred to as the ark of the testimony. In fact, God eventually instructed Moses to put into the ark three things. Of course, the two tablets of the law. But also, at one point, he was to put into there a, um, remember it was a box, okay, and, uh, and all. And so, you know, put in the two tablets of the law. Also, they were to put in a golden pot that had some manna inside. And finally, uh, there was placed inside the ark the uh, rod of Aaron. If you remember in number 16, at one point, there were some other families of Levi who felt like, hey, we're tired of this, um, you know, was nepotism. Moses, you get your brother as the high priest. Hey, we got as much right as, as Aaron to offer incense to God and be priests. Moses said, really? Well, let's do this. You guys, it was Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, were the three heads of these families. And Moses said, well, why don't you guys take your staff, stick them in the ground. Aaron, you take your staff, stick it in the ground, let's see what happens. Next day, they go out there. Aaron's staff had budded and had almonds grown out of it. The others, nothing. Moses said, well, you know, it looks like God has spoken, but let's be sure. Everybody move away from the tents, Dathan, Abiram, and Korah. All right, Lord, what do you want to do? Ground opens up, swallows these three families down to Sheol, closes up. People are terrified, as they should have been. And Moses said, look, when God speaks and God says this is the way it is, this is the way it must be. We don't tell God his business. We don't say, well, God, why does he get to be a pastor? And I don't, because I said so. But I'm better than him. I'm holier than him. Yeah, but I haven't chosen you. See, we have to you know, make sure that we are following what God has determined. Anyways, there was a second part of the Ark of the Covenant, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. 
and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give to you, Ten Commandments, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So again, the ark was made up of actually two pieces, a rectangular wooden box overlaid with gold, and then a lid made of pure gold called the mercy seat. And as we just read, on the mercy seat at either end were a cherub and a cherub. Cherubim is plural. So there, there were two angels. Cherubs are angels, very high angels. And these angels were to be beaten out of this one piece of gold with the mercy seat. And these angels were to be on either end, facing each other, with their heads bowed down and their wings coming up, touching almost tip to tip, directly above the mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat, guys, that between the cherubim, that God was symbolically understood to dwell. It was his throne on the earth. And uh, the lid was called the mercy seat because on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he was only able to do that once a year. On the Feast of Yom Kippur, he was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, but only after many sacrifices, many ceremonial washings and changes of clothing. And as we've already said, they tied a rope on his ankle, put bells on the bottom of his robe, because... If there was any sin in his life that hadn't been dealt with, when he walked into the Holy of Holies, he'd be struck dead. So they were out there listening for the tinkling. I hear the tinkling. Okay, it's good, it's good. It's good. All of a sudden, tinkling, stop, thud, uh-oh. Well, you didn't want to go in there and get the guy. You'd be struck dead. Drag him out. Okay? So if you're the high priest, this is not a nice day for you. All right? You didn't look forward to this. You know, this wasn't like Christmas if you're a Christian, okay? This was a very serious day. You could be wiped out. But as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the day of Yom Kippur and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, the idea was God hovered above the mercy seat. As he looked down, he saw in the ark the broken tablets of the law. Some people believe that the very tablets that Moses broke when he threw them down were the ones that God had him put into the ark of the covenant. And the idea was that God looked down, saw the broken law, but then, which meant judgment, but then saw the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, which spoke of atonement, and that allowed him, the blood allowed him to show mercy to the nation and not destroy them. Now, <laughs> I talked about this a few years ago, but I have to bring it up just quickly. Unbelievers, including Hollywood, have had a field day with this piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, haven't they? Uh, I was watching a program, and I don't know why, I don't really do it anymore, but the History Channel once in a while has something with a biblical, you know, the, the, you know, ancient biblical artifacts or whatever. I thought, okay, I'll check it out, okay? And I was watching this program on the History Channel, and once it started, I realized where they were going with this, okay? Um, they were talking about how aliens had visited the earth so many times in the past, and then they tried to take passages from the Bible to say that the writers in the Bible weren't really describing angels or demons or even God. They were really describing alien encounters. And they went on to say, that's about the time I turned it off, 
that the Ark of the Covenant was actually an alien piece of equipment, a power generator of some kind, generating remarkable power. Well, in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember that movie? One of the people in the movie said that the Ark was a transmitter for contacting God. Another said uh, it was a source of immeasurable power so that any army possessing the Ark would be invincible. Apparently they didn't read 1 Samuel 4. Because Israel brought the ark into battle against the Philistines, got the snot kicked out of them. And the Philistines took the ark, and for a while they had it until God dealt with them. So, you know, the, this is just hokum, you know. Uh, people come up with all these kinds. Of, just read your Bible, okay? I love it when people who don't really read the Bible try to tell me what the Bible is saying. Anyways, verse 23, we move to another piece of furniture in the tabernacle. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the pole. So this was also carried uh, on poles, uh, as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the, the uh, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring, you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So uh, as you entered the tabernacle back then, into that first compartment, the holy place, if you were to look to your right, you would see this small golden table called the table of showbread. It was called the table of showbread because every week, 12 loaves of bread were baked fresh, and they were placed on the table, each loaf, uh, represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were on display. They were sh being shown. Of course, it all pointed to Jesus. Bread, the table of showbread, Jesus, who is called the bread of life. In fact, everything about the tabernacle, as we're going to see as we go through this, everything about the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ, who is himself, listen, our tent of meeting, the place where men and God come together for the purpose of communion and fellowship. Once you accepted Christ, you were brought into Christ, and that allowed you to have fellowship with God, okay? It's interesting how in John chapter 1, verse 14, John said, and the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt means tabernacled. Jesus pitched a tent among sinful man his human body was not permanent it would be replaced with his glorified body a temple but he came down pitched a tent among us and again the whole purpose was for us to be able to have fellowship with god through what he was going to do verse 31 you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold the lampstand shall be of hammered work its shaft its branches its bowls its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be one uh, shall be one piece, 
and six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like the uh, almond blossoms uh, on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like uh, almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. You know, do it for every one of them. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like, an, like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the, of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, all of it shall be of one hammered piece of pure gold. The estimated weight about 100 pounds. It's a lot of gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it, and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So again, upon entering into the tabernacle, that first compartment, the holy place, if you look to the right, table of showbread. If you look to the left, you saw this uh, golden lampstand, also known as the menorah. And as we've just read, the menorah was really a seven-branched, listen, oil-burning lamp. Some people try to make it a candlestick holder. No, there was no wax in the temple or tabernacle. This was an oil-burning lamp lamp containing a center stem and that and then out of each side there were three branches that came up so a total of seven branches made up the menorah and listen guys it was the only light source in the tabernacle the only light source and it also pointed to jesus who said i am the light of the world i am the light of the world in fact john the apostle in introducing jesus in his gospel opened up with these words in him was life and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not extinguish it. Tough luck, Satan. You plunge this world into darkness, but light has now entered it, and there's nothing you can do about it. The light is here, and it's here to light men and women's way back to God. And the devil can try all he wants. He cannot extinguish that light. And God also, guys, commanded... Not here, but in other places. He commanded that once the menorah was lit, it was to remain lit and never go out. Now, of course, in the wilderness, when they broke camp, they had to put it out. But as long as camp was set up, the menorah burned constantly. Now, when the temple replaced the tabernacle and the menorah was stationary, then uh, it was never to go out the light. It became the responsibility of the priests every day. And the menorah was pretty big in those days. They would climb it up to it, and they would make sure they poured enough oil into each of the seven cups or bowls to keep the lamp, the light burning. The light was always to be burning. A little side historical note concerning this, and we'll bring it to a close. And I'm dovetailing off of this idea that once the menorah was lit, it was never to go out. A little side historical note. In the years 175 to 165 BC, there was a Syrian king who conquered the land of Israel and ruled over Israel, over the Jewish people, whose name was Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. He took to himself the title Theos Epiphanes. 
which means the manifest God. He was a nut job, though. It's a real wing nut. So the Jewish people nicknamed him Epimenes. Epimenes means madman or the insane one. So Antiochus Epiphanes, me, the exalted God. They said, no, Antiochus Epimenes, you, the madman. <laughs> you can get the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees because they're not inspired, but they are very valuable historical books. And they record the history of this period and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and his persecution of the Jewish people. He was brutal. I mean, he slaughtered thousands of Jewish men, sold many of their wives and children into slavery, and tried to completely obliterate the Jewish religion. In fact, he tried to turn them into a Greek culture. Well, there was no way that was going to happen. And so he became furious. At one point, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig, the most unclean of all animals, on the brazen altar of sacrifice, and then forced the priest to eat the pig's flesh. He then set up in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the very place where only God was to dwell. He erected a statue of Zeus Olympus because he fancied himself being the embodiment of Zeus. Well, that horrific abomination set up in the holiest place of the temple, the place where only the God of Israel was to occupy. Again, it completely desecrated the temple, rendering it useless for the worship of God. And this abomination of desolation is what it's called in the Bible. So angered uh, a, a group of... Um, Judas Maccabeus was a priest from a priestly family. Uh, he had brothers, I forgot how many, but Judas Maccabeus, along with his brothers, led uh, a revolt against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, they should never have won. I mean, they were really outnumbered and so on, but they had got on their side, of course, so they led this Maccabean revolt, and uh, it resulted in victory. They defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, and um, they cleansed the temple in December of 164 B.C., after the cleansing of the temple of all pagan defilement, then they went to rededicate it by lighting the menorah lampstand once again, because it had gone out, of course. But to their dismay, they discovered there was only enough consecrated oil to last one day. And it would take a week to consecrate more oil. But by faith, they lit the menorah anyways, and a miracle happened. That oil that was only supposed to burn for a day lasted eight days until they could reconsecrate more oil. Of course, if you go to Israel, you find the two different kinds of menorahs. You find the seven-branched menorah, and then you find the eight-branched menorah, which is a Hanukkah menorah. You see, a feast day developed out of this very incident, historical incident. It became known as the Jewish Festival of Lights because how God miraculously kept the light in the temple going, the menorah burning. We know it as Hanukkah. The Hebrew word for Hanukkah means uh, dedication. So this time in December is the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, a time when they rededicated the temple back to God, lit the menorah, and God miraculously kept it burning until more oil could be consecrated. Now, one last thing about the menorah, and we'll close. It not only spoke of Jesus, who was the light of the world, but listen to me now, this is where we come in. It also spoke of our relationship with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15? He said, 
I am the vine, you are the branches, right? In the scriptures, six is the number of man. Seven is the number of completeness, right? So six, incomplete. Plus one, seven, complete. That was what God was communicating through the menorah, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the main stem, right? And once we're connected to him, well, man plus Jesus becomes complete, and we have fellowship. God now says, Jesus, I'm the light of the world, but then he says, now you are the light of the world. Because the Holy Spirit, which is symbolic, the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Once we're saved, he has poured into us. And because we are now children of God, the light goes on. It's resident in us because of the Spirit of God lives in us. And we go out into this world now as a light. And that's what the vine and branches was a picture of. And the menorah before that, signifying that six man, number of incompleteness, joined with Christ, produces a completed life. A life that is rich, full, and is a light to those in darkness to draw them to God as well. That's our mission. That's our responsibility. All right. God willing, next week we will begin to look at the tabernacle and some of the other pieces of furniture that went along with the tabernacle. And there's a lot of stuff that we're going to glean. Not anywhere near all of it, but I'm going to tell you it's an incredible lesson and it all again points to jesus so we'll see that as we go next time father we thank you for your word we thank you lord for uh, leading us through it tonight thank you lord for the lessons you've placed here for us that we have learned by your spirit give us grace to apply them and we thank you lord above all else that once our lives were defiled there was no light but lord because you redeemed us, we are now connected to you. The oil of the Holy Spirit has been poured into us, and you have lit our lives for your glory, and now we are the light of the world as well. Give us grace, Lord, to go out into a world of darkness and shine forth as lights, not afraid, not worried about what people think. Give us boldness, Lord, to only care about what you think. And we thank you, Lord, for your privilege of being your children. And we ask you to continue to bless these studies. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.